How are you? What are you drinking? Something strong. What's the matter, huh? President Roosevelt escaped. What are you talking about? Presidents. Which one? Roosevelt. Yeah, which one? No, my tortoise. President Roosevelt. He escaped. How does a hundred-year-old tortoise escape? I left the gate open when I went to check the mail. Where's your mailbox, Europe? <laughs> <laughs> I saw him eyeing that gate the other day. He had to have timed it out perfectly. I searched our entire neighborhood. Did you search your entire yard? <laughs> hey, we're talking about his best friend here. Thank you, Lucky. You're welcome, Howard. You're right, you're right. I'm sorry. We shouldn't make fun. I'm gonna miss him. He's outlived two of my wives. I'm going to the WC. Okay, Bill. You know, friendship between animals and humans is essential and special. And friendship is essential to the soul. What? Friendship is essential to the soul. It doesn't exist. What, friendship? The soul. Hey, knucklehead, inside voices. You've landed on The Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us here every other week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, and I am I am unbelievably excited to share this episode with everybody. If you're new to The Substance, we are a variety show where every other week we talk for about 60-plus-ish minutes about things related to faith, culture, and the arts, and we invite on folks who are smart, talented, engaging in good, valuable work. Previous guests on the film side include folks like Josh Larson from Film Spotting, the now New York Times film critic Alyssa Wilkinson, Mike White of the Projection Booth podcast, and our pals Slim and Mitchell over at Letterboxd. But then we also have folks like Jamar Tisby and campaign co-founders Justin Gibney and Shobaraka, poet, activist, multi-hyphenate artist, uh, propaganda, and author and co-host of the Holy Post podcast, Caitlin Shess. Our libraries got about a, just under 150 episodes. Go check it out if you're new to the show. A lot of great content, a lot of great guests in there. But this week is very special because while we've had a lot of very wonderful people in the film criticism world and in the film promotion world, we have our first real filmmaker and this was this was so exciting uh, we talk about it briefly in the show but lucky a film we're covering today is a film that i have loved for quite a long time and that's the same with abiel chessy who former guest on the show friend of the podcast see her out at uh, film events here in kansas city local film critic here with the pitch she as well has been a, a fan of this film ever since it came out i've just tweeted and posted and here and there about it. And every now and then John Carroll Lynch has liked it or shared it. And a couple of times I'm like, Hey, like, let me just reach out and see what happens. And I reached out a handful of times, didn't get anything back. Didn't take it personally. Didn't pester, but every now and then when lucky would come up organically and he was attached or tagged or liked it, I throw it out there. 
And then a little while back when the writer's strike was happening, Abby was talking about how Lucky is going to be featured in the Lent section of her upcoming book with IVP, Silver Screen Liturgies. I'm very excited for that. And then I, I did it again. I was like, hey, if you ever would be interested in talking with us, we'd love to have you. And he said, sure. Well, when the strike is over, um, reach out to me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I will. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea. He seemed like a good guy, like a, a working character actor who, as you'll hear in the conversation, he's a very humble guy, very down to earth dude. I was like, I, I think he's serious. So after the strike terms were met, I reached back out and said, hey, um, would love to uh, get this on the books. And he hit me back almost immediately. And then, and here we are. So John Carroll Lynch over his decades, decades long career. I mean, a lot of you guys, if you don't know the name, you see the face, you're like, oh, I know that guy. He's worked with so many people over his career. He's worked with uh, folks like Martin Scorsese, David Fincher. He tells a great Scorsese story right out of the gate. So look out for that. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, Scorsese, Fincher, the Coens. Clint Eastwood, John Woo, Albert Brooks, Tom Hanks in the HBO show. Like he's worked with so many great directors. And now the right script, the right set of circumstances came along and he got to make his first movie. And it's incredible. And it's also kind of just fascinating and interesting, providentially starring Harry Dean Stanton, who was... A, a very prolific character actor as well of the previous generation. So a lot of incredible stuff here. This movie is beautiful and transcendent and about all the things in life and death and mortality. It's an incredible film. He was very generous with Abby and I. We had a wonderful conversation. So um, I'm excited for you guys to listen share the show with your friends. And if you are a Patreon member, you can actually go uh, watch the video. So uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with John Carroll Lynch on his directorial debut, Lucky. Well, Mr. Lynch, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it very much. I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of things. I want to keep it lucky focused because that's why we're here. Uh, and I guess the one fan question I had before we start was looking at all of the great folks you worked with over the years. One stood out Shutter Island. What was it like working with Scorsese and Max von Sydow on the same set? What in the world was that like? So the first three days of the film, I was freaked out. I'd worked with Mark before gratefully, so I could talk to him about it. I was, I was like, I, I had auditioned for the film. I had Matt Martin because I wouldn't, I, Marty, I'm not, I'm not a friend. It's a anyway, very familiar term, right? <laughs> yeah. Mr. Scorsese. I think that I'm most comfortable with that anyway. He, but he was, it was like, you know how you have like a, a sore, like in your mouth, but you, you go, is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Yeah, <laughs> yep, still there. And that's how it felt with him. It's like, I think he's, I think he's right over my right shoulder. Yeah, he's still there. He's still there. <laughs> And it was like that for the first two days. I was just freaked out that he was in three dimensions and that I was on his set. And I, uh, the third day was a split day. I had uh, a scene in the morning and a long break and then a scene at, at night. And uh, I was like, you just got to get over this. 
you know, so I said, you know, I'd worked on films before. This is a film. This is no problem. And then um, I was sitting on the set in the, for the first half and I heard John and, and, and it, it was Marty and I hadn't realized he was there. I was like, oh, this is good. This is good. I didn't know you were there. Kind of demystified a little bit at that <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So then there was a long break and I come back on the set and Max von Sydow is there. And what happened was I was sitting right next to Marty because Bob Richardson was going to be in the driver's seat of the car I was supposedly driving, which they'd already done my coverage. And they were going to do Leo and Mark in the back seats from the front seat as they towed the rig with a rain with a rain tree behind it. So you could see them and then you could see Max von Sido out the window standing in the rain. So Max von Sido stands out and I was just like, oh, God, this is now this is just worse now. This is worse. <laughs> and uh, I tried to go up and say something. And I, I said, without a doubt, not a sentence uh, to him. Oh, like you couldn't say anything? No, I said something. There, there were words. <laughs> it was because English is so forgiving syntactically. It was likely a sentence. There was an object and a subject and a verb in it somewhere. But nothing really that meant anything. And then I came back to the chair and I was sitting there and I'm, I look at him and I go, Jesus. And Marty looks at me and looks at what I'm looking at. And he goes, I know. What do you say to the guy? <laughs> <laughs> now, do, do you say like uh, Bergman made you stand behind a car like this? I don't know what you said. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm a Italian American film fan. So Marty mm -hmm. was like, same. Always worshipped in my household. I, I think Shutter Island is, I think more people are maybe coming onto it now, but I feel like that's a very underrated one. I feel, what did he call it? He either called it like his Hammer Horror, his Val Luton movie, like one of his like genre exercises, like doing something that he loves, but that the general public has never kind of valued highly in the same way they do like drama. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. They certainly value it with ticket sales. So I, mm. I'm not sure who you're talking about. People <laughs> love horror and they go to it all the time. And and uh, and I think the movies. I think it's an excellent meditation on madness, and it's got noir roots, and it's really, um, it's beautifully cast. And everyone who works at the asylum has a filmography of sociopaths. It's not surprising that Leo's character is a little suspicious of absolutely everybody he meets. And that was one of the cool things about being a member of that crew. When you make as many movies and you make as many movies well, you know, even the even the ones, well, that's a lesser one. Like, yeah, it's lesser. It's like, I what guess. does that mean? Right. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. And also, I love where, you know, he was a guy who just it was clear he's not making it for anybody else. He's, mm. he's just doing what he does. This is what he does. He makes these and he'll continue to make them not because and, and and he'll continue to make them until they pry an iPhone from his hand. I mean, he'll do whatever he has to do to get a movie made. So I was going to also ask Shutter Island that came out in 2010. Did you do Mark Ruffalo's movie before or after that? The uh, his directorial debut and I'm pretty sure his only film. I'm. I'm not sure if I did it just before I worked with Mark on, on uh, Zodiac and then mm -hmm. I did. Which I'm sure when people see you and recognize you for that, they're real warm. <laughs> it's funny when you turn a corner. Oh! Like, I've, gotten I've gotten a response. 
I think Sympathy for Delicious was in between the two. Nice. And yeah, we- I, going through your filmography, I was struck by how many people who have been in the business doing other roles. You did a, a handful of their first films and kind of thinking about that in relationship with Lucky, I was mm-hmm. just kind of struck with all the incredible people you guys got to between you and Harry Dean being the core of this and the movie being very influenced and inspired by his life, you you got an incredible cast with Lucky as well. The Rolodex was almost entirely of Harry's doing. Anybody who we asked, for the most part, showed up to work with him for a day or two or three or whatever they had. And it, it was a... It was written with such intimacy by Logan Sparks and Drago Simonja. It had such a heart to it. But it was also had a cross weird cross current because the character is not Harry, mm-hmm. uh, even though they share the same biography. And that was weird. Uh, that was weird for Harry. And uh, I'm sure there are a couple of times where I could kind of sense that he was there was one moment where he was just, I don't know that I want to give this story away uh, in this context. The Mockingbird uh, story uh, is one that's formative for him. And he, it's in the film and he, I don't think he really wanted it to be there. Uh, I was, I got to the set and Logan and Drago pulled me aside and said, Harry, we had to talk Harry out of cutting this scene last night. I went to him and said, listen, this is, I don't want to make you go through this any more times than you have to. So we'll just see how, how the first one goes. And it was beautiful. And I said, I, it was beautiful and in focus framed beautifully. And I said, I don't need another, if you don't. and he never wanted to do another take. Um, he wanted, you know, he wanted to just do one and leave. Um, so he was 89 through most of this, right? 89, 90, 89 through the whole thing. And, but he said, he said, he asked for two more on that one. So, on the hummingbird, yeah, on the yeah, on the on the story about the mockingbird, yeah, it was or the mockingbird, yeah, it was just, it was a surprise. It was a very intimate thing to give away, uh, especially in the context of that film. Well, and that's and you would know, just with the the prolific different types of work you've done, how how storytelling and art and creating how it all of the best of that really does like reveal the self and the stuff that we know and we like the good and the bad and, and Harry himself and lucky such an interesting compilation of different uh, points of view, contradictions, uh, a life lived. And I, I thought it was funny thinking back on it for the purpose of this conversation. When Harry Dean first comes into frame fully, I love the opening, by the way, I don't know between you and um, the writers and the, DP, like kind of putting together, like you see like the pieces of Harry. And then when he comes fully in, it's kind of like our generation of like the, like the masculine American myth. Like he comes on and he brings all the baggage of he'd worked since like the sixties or the fifties, right? Like he's, he's got a lot of baggage. When you see him on a screen, you can kind of put every, and he started, he did a ton of Westerns. He's done a lot of formative things and had been mm-hmm. small parts in a lot of very influential things. And now we see him kind of at the end of his life. And all of that comes with just him walking in a frame. Yeah. I mean, his face was a map and, uh, and, uh, he, 
he was the best at being on film I've ever seen. Mm. Um, he was the absolute best at being. And it's true in Godfather as much as it is in um, Paris, Texas, as much as it is in Repo Man, as much as it is. His work is first and foremost a meditation on being. And um, and part of that was uh, by design. That's where he wanted to start. He didn't want to act at all. Like he he would say, <laughs> he would say, I don't I, I I don't act. That would be his mantra. I don't act. After working with him and watching, you know, was particularly watching dailies. That is one hundred percent full of shit. But which he was in a lot of very interesting ways, without a doubt, also being completely truthful. No, without a doubt, he was, he was, he was all, he was as uh, full of contradictions as anybody, as anybody else, except he, he lived them all, but all at the same time. But what it did was, what that mantra did for him was it's, it uh, let him be in a way that was fundamental and also. It kept him from being directed too much. When someone's telling you they're not acting, they're also asking you not to direct. <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, and uh, so that was an interesting thing about you know having my first feature with someone who who, who didn't want to act and who didn't want to be directed. So one quick question that that made me think: so you and your relationship directing Harry, did you guys overlap on season two or three of Big Love? Did you guys? have any working relationship? I met him on the set of that, uh, but only cursorily. I met him on the set of- Because you were only in a few episodes of that one, I, was, right? I, think, I, was, I think I was only in one. Uh, okay. Jeannie Purplehorn was my primary acting partner in the in the show, but I met him during that time because- Okay. It's been a long time since I've watched that. Yeah. The, Drago, um, one of the co-writers who was, who was my friend who brought me into it, he um, met Harry through through Dabney. He met him through Dabney because Dabney Coleman, you know, and he, Harry were friends for, you know, decades and um, and mostly through Dan Tanis, I think. But um, I don't think so. going were... into this, there wasn't like a tight bond between you two. No, no, uh, no. I, I, I'd met him a few times. I'd had drinks with him at Dan Tanis a couple of times. But no, there was no, and that was a good, that was a good thing for me. So that it could like be about the work and about what that, you were doing? Well, that, and also it was easier for me to keep Lucky and Harry uh, apart. Sure. Uh, because uh, um, Lucky's life is not Harry's life. And the, the story of the movie, which is an in, entirely interior story, you know, it's all happening inside of him, the story of the film. It uses his biography, but not in the way that Harry would have put it together. And so we came up with, uh, I mean, over the course of the film, we came up with a good working relationship, but Harry's not without challenges. He's not without challenges. Yeah. And actually, I kind of want to uh, go off on that and ask a little bit about the kind of that dichotomy and that that challenge is that like, Having watched this movie a few times, I feel like Lucky the movie does not always seem to believe the same things that Lucky the man does. And I I just, yeah, I just found that really curious. Like what parts of this do you think, I know, I know it was written 
with a certain amount of like of of love for for Harry and a certain amount of paying attention to like his his personality as well as building a character and i was curious like what ways do you think the movie is illustrating that and in what ways do you think it's commenting on that like pointing out some of those those places of contradiction i'm not sure i'm not sure what uh, what what feeling you felt that was contradictory to essentially who you imagined Harry to be mm-hmm. and uh, who Lucky who Lucky is in the film. Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily. I, I think maybe the that the writers have a different perspective on what they think of Lucky oh. um, and what he believes in the way that he acts um, than the way that Lucky moves through the world. And I don't think it's necessarily antagonistic. I think in some ways it's just kind of commenting on it and saying. Yeah. That it's interesting that he feels this way. I've always, whenever we were looking at the film and as we were putting it together, what I loved about the way in which the screenplay worked was that you weren't quite sure how much of what Lucky says he actually believes. Yeah, exactly. He has a beautiful speech <clears throat> at the end, a beautiful kind of discovery about nothing, you know, guts and... Um, and then he wins the argument, and then he lights a cigarette inside. And you're, I loved uh, over the course of time. I would laugh, going, "I'm not sure whether he had all that fight and that thing about nothingness just so he could light a cigarette inside or not." Right. right. <laughs> I'm not sure, and I'm glad I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's what makes it human, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I. I, I uh, you know the the questions of mortality and eternity, which the movie rests on. There are no true human answers. We have many metaphors for for our perception of the world. We have many metaphors for that. In every uh, society, we come to uh, an understanding of a ritual around uh, acceptance of our finiteness. And some of them I'm more familiar with because I'm a Catholic than others I'm unfamiliar with. But all, all, almost every uh, religion in the world has a ritual that that bonds that time as sacred. And the central core of the question in the film is: What is sacred if nothing is? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. What is eternity and sacredness? And that's that I think whatever Harry believes or believed, which he says in the movie was his primary ethos, whatever he really truly believed, what the film hopefully brings people to is an understanding of a practical understanding of what it feels like. Absolutely. To come to terms with my ending. Yeah. I love that. When you frame it that way, it makes me think. So a few years ago, I've seen this film probably four or five times. A few years ago, and I think in 2021, uh, I had like a remote film group during COVID where we would all watch movies together and then talk about it. And I showed several of my friends Lucky. And then on my own, I went and I watched Partly Fiction. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. And then earlier this week to prepare for this, I watched it again, more like Lucky-focused. And seeing Logan in that 
And especially some of the scenes in Dantana's where I was like, I'm pretty sure some of this is like in real time, the notes or the documents that Logan took to write in the script. Cause the mouse's line about, um, so like friendship is essential to the soul and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That was directly in the film and mouse was also in the film briefly as well. Yeah. Like I was like, and then it went aside. So it's in partly fiction. It showed kind of Harry holding court and Dantana's given his like the beauty of nihilism kind of speech. And then it cuts to Logan going, he's full of it. Like he's a big softy also like, yeah, he kind of believes this, but it's also just like you said, it's, it's not like a judgment, but it's like it does his belief in the nothing and in the void does something for him. But also when the rubber meets the road and like when, when you see Harry talking about acting, he'll say in one breath, I'm nothing. You're nothing. There is no such thing as the soul. Hey, like how did you prepare for Paris, Texas and repo man? Well, I just brought Harry Dean Stanton to it. And it's like, well, you just said Harry Dean Stanton is nothing. So like kind of (laughs) the the contradiction of all of that smashed together in a very Mm -hmm. uh, lovable, mysterious uh, character. Yeah. I mean, uh, his, when we were getting ready to make the movie, we read Dan Tannis and he was outside with a shot of tequila and a cigarette because you can't smoke inside anymore. It was a nice warm night, and this guy started talking to me. And he, uh, you know, what happened? Have you been to Dan Tannis? No, I would love okay, to. So, so uh, Dan Tannis is an Italian steakhouse until about nine thirty, and then it turns into the Star Wars bar until closing. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a series of aliens that come through the doors, and you're crazy in there. I mean, the weirdest shit. <laughs> in that building. It's so cr- nuts. Anyway. This guy started talking to me and he said, you know, I just finished my drive from Florida. I just sold all my stuff and I, I just moved. I, I just had a calling. I needed to move here. Uh, and he told me about it. And I was like, well, good for you, man. That's fine. Good for you. And, he, and then over the course of about a 25 minutes conversation, he goes, hey, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? <laughs> and i looked at my watch and said dude it's like 12 30 so i'm gonna wrap this up you thought he was gonna say hey can i come along on an audition but he was like <laughs> so i left and then i the next day we were gonna go over to harry's to do some script work and so uh, i get a call uh, i get a call from one of the writers i think it was drago and i said how was the rest of the evening he goes oh well that guy you were talking to he went over and sat with Harry. Uh, and he asked Harry if he, you know, had accepted Jesus Christ as, uh, as his personal savior. And Harry's response was, how do you know we're even here, man? Like, <laughs> you know, any of this is actually real right now. Like Classic. you and I here, is it a dream or is it actually happening? And so they spent about 45 minutes, uh, each of them um, trying to convert the other until I guess they agreed to part ways. <laughs> uh, when you are a when you are a preacher, and Harry was a preacher, um, you know, there's a there's a presentation to it hmm. that he all that he could turn on. I mean, one of the funny parts about doing the script work was times where we would be doing the script work and he go, Man, I would never say I would never say that. 
and Logan would say, you said this last week. You said yep. <laughs> I can absolutely picture that. Exactly this last week. Oh, whatever. I would know. We got you video. We got you on video, Harry. Uh, and that's one of the weird cross currents of, you know, of the piece because it was so intimately created. It was tailored for mm -hmm. him that, 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 that sometimes uh, I get pinched a little bit because he couldn't get away from it. Um, by that, I mean, you know, you do a role and you, you discover things in, in it. Even if you're Harry, you're doing that. Probably more likely you are doing that more than anything else. And to discover his own biography in the piece is very strange. Very strange relationship to material. Especially being almost 90 in a movie about joyfully living in mortality. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you saying that... Uh that Harry was asking the guy, like, how do you know any of this is even here? Are we actually here? Are we even experiencing this? It made me think of like the, the one scene in, in lucky that I've never quite been able to wrap my head around is the scene after he leaves Elaine's and James Darren comes after him and tells him not to, not to fight the, the lawyer. And then there's this, yeah, this great big red light. And then James Darren leaves the scene, walks through the bar and then, Lucky kind of follows him. I'm like, what is, it seems sort of hellish. It seems sort of otherworldly. And then it just kind of ends in this odd dream sequence. And you're left wondering like- Very Lynchian, if you Yeah, will. very Lynchian. And you're like, did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we with that? You know, it's come to my understanding uh, making the film, but, but more and more as I work on other films. Harry was right. And certainly the writers were right that realism is a thing. <laughs> that it's a, it's a motif. Realism is a chosen motif. Shutter Island really, really plays with that. The jump cuts, the, the intentional movements of uh, a, a coffee cup from one side to the other, the weird way in Thelma and Marty cut the movie made you question, did I, did I miss something? Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I feel like we, I, I love them. I love when people are able to mix, mix fantasy into film. This particular movie has magical realism, magical realism moments, mm -hmm. but where do they start exactly? There's a way to read the movie that, you know, the door opens at the beginning of the film and he's swallowed by sunlight and doors. Yeah, he, he is like walking into yeah. like glory, like he is walking into like this, glory. like Shekinah, like just pure, yeah. like bright light. Mm -hmm. And then I caught that this time, especially. Yeah. And then that's when you see him fully. And it's kind of like it's a transition and you can read that a number of ways. Yeah, and I mean, I, I loved everything about this screenplay that, that questioned what you're gorgeous, man. A, it's a, it's a beautiful screenplay. world again. You know, if we're talking about what the, you know, what does it feel like to, to accept uh, one's time is limited? What does it yeah. feel like? And, um, 
And so things stopped meaning what they meant. My dad, when he was dying, he got an I voted sticker because he voted from the hospital for in a primary, a Democratic primary for governor. And he voted, as he always did in his entire life, for the most progressive candidate he could find, Uh, which meant in Colorado, he lost a lot. I mean, he rarely won. You know, his he, he was a political guy for his whole life. They tried all these different things to give him some more time. Um, And uh, finally, they pulled the chest tube because he was eventually going to drown. Mm. Uh, And they couldn't do anything about it anymore. And uh, so we're sitting, I'm sitting at the end of the bed, and my sisters are on either side of my dad. My dad, gratefully, was not in a lot of pain, completely conscious, you know, didn't have to you know, it wasn't fuzzy or anything because he didn't really require much pain relief. And um, he's listening to them having really intense, they both live in Colorado and they were having an intense conversation about what was going to happen next. And, you know, now that the primary is over and, you know, how are they going to approach the general election and all this stuff? And he's listening back and forth as he would about any political conversation. And he looks, he, he stops in the middle and he looks up at me and I saw him realize, oh, I'm not going to be here for this. Mm. And he went, you know, like, I don't need to listen to this anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not, yeah. This is not for me. This is a conversation that has nothing to do with me. Yeah. And and I think that that sense of a a shock out of reality into a different relationship with the present moment is, um, you know, the fall in the film. But, but how do you digest that truth? How do you digest the fragility of the life that you've established? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I, 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 all of the need is played out in a very tiny pa- palette. And I, I love that, you know. I love bringing big ideas, you know, you know, like I saw Origin and Origin is an extraordinary film. Hmm. Ava DuVernay's new movie. It looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks wonderful. It's it's amazing, but it's big ideas that go bigger. Hmm. I mean, it is gargantuan. I mean, even though it's a human, it's all human and it's all moving. And but it's such a big there are so many big ideas in the film that she's able to balance with drama it's extraordinary it's a movie i could not make beyond the quality of her extraordinary talent and her understanding of film which is far beyond anything i could i could imagine mm-hmm. but also i wouldn't want to because i i approach the work as an actor i want any movie i make to be sized i want all the mm-hmm. big ideas whatever the primary idea is but then I want it to be played out in a recognizably human experience. Yeah. And, well, be- and that's what Lucky does. Yeah. And in between you and the writers, I'm always so impressed. Like, I love doing this and sharing great stories and bringing them yeah. to audiences. Like, I'd maybe like to create something someday. But I've been on a Sam Fuller kick, and he rarely makes a movie over 85 minutes. Lucky's like 88 minutes and there's like clear pre-fall 
after the fall, you get the Johnny Cash song and then you get like, it's just so economical. And you're like, that was like less than an hour and a half with credits. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, it was, it's a lean little piece and it had to be for a wide variety of reasons. Mm. Um, That's probably true. How many uh, days did you guys do? We had a limited amount of time. We had 18 days to shoot it. And, and, um, and also we needed to husband Harry's energy at 89. So it was all, it was all, you know, everything we could do to economize, uh, we did. And, uh, when I, I was asked to come on board as the director, all I did with, you know, the work on the screenplay with a lot of help from other producers with other ideas, Ira, Stephen Bear, Richard Kahan, they both were, uh, you know, instrumental in helping Drago and Logan get deeper and deeper into the script. They had already created everything I, I wanted to do was to make sure that you knew where Lucky was, that there was no scene that was just simply floating there. It needed to be tied down yeah. to the mm-hmm. journey that the character was on that it had to give him something. And, you, and, and, and I, you know, I, I think that's, that's crucial. There's a great story about, um, so Fran really wanted to have the Mike Yanagita scene cut from Fargo. She really <laughs> didn't understand why the scene was there. It's like, it's got nothing to do with the case. It's got nothing to do with it. Why do you have, why do you want this? Yeah, Joel Ethan, explain this to me. This no, is what, weird. What is this? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I don't know what she, what she's what is she doing there? And they finally, you know, said to her, "It's the only scene in the movie that that we see Marge as Marge, not as her job, and not as her not as a wife. She she is. It's the only scene in the film where you see her react as her fully and completely independent mm-hmm. on her own." And um, and when I saw the movie and I've thought about that movie, what that does in the course of the film is it it stakes with it puts down roots in an unmistakable way that Marge Gunderson is a pillar of common decency. That she is compassionate. And can hold her boundaries. That she's living a life that she, she of integrity but most importantly, that she's just a decent person. And that's her superpower in the movie, mm. is her decency. When I was looking at Lucky, it was like, what is this scene doing? How is, how is he feeling and where does this take him? Mm-hmm. Um, because the journey, that's the journey, that's the only journey in the movie. There's no car crashes, there's no incidences in the film. No gunfights. No. Nope. No gunfights. You know, the, the the closest thing to an action sequence is the bouncy castle. Yeah. But it was in the screenplay, but it was like, let's make sure that there's nothing in here that we don't absolutely need. Yeah. This might be a little inside baseball, but I was wondering myself, just with Harry being around forever, and one of the things Logan said in um, um, Partly Fiction was he cut – he, um, likened harry to the forrest gump of like all of hollywood's history that like he's kind of in and out like the people he's connected to are kind of crazy um did did he know did he have a relationship with johnny cash i know he's in the music world did you guys kind of just get that or did you guys have to (laughs) know quite a bit that was a uh that was a long drawn out good chunk of budget 
that was a long drawn out conversation that mm. that took a long time to boat that marlin it was a it was a tough one to boat because you know i i when i was first getting ready to try to direct i i struck up a friendship with a guy who uh used to sell music for movies when that was a thing you know like he had a job selling warner brothers license licenses and i said so how does this work exactly because i have to understand what it is he goes he said this is what happens you budget you set aside uh money for post and you set aside money for your music budget based on what you the music you have in the piece and then you go through it you go through making the movie and you've rated the music money to finish your movie and then you call me and ask me for a favor. <laughs> and you beg. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. Wow. I mean, it was it was really surprising to me. There were moments where I said to producers about the mariachi, about the uh, about the ranchero and the mariachi yeah. music um, on the radio. I was like, "Don't send me anything I can't afford." Like, how much do we? How much can we have for this? It's five hundred bucks. Okay. Send me Take all it. the music you have mm -hmm. for $500. So we did it and we found the pieces and it turns out the lyrics are perfect. Uh, I did not know that until well late into the thing, but the, the circus-like um, atmosphere at the beginning of the movie, that circus-like um, mariachi song is, uh, the lyrics are perfect. I can't remember what they are right now, but they're perfect for the <laughs> film. But anyway, um, so... Uh, we finished the sequence and one of my producers goes, calls me and goes, yeah, um, it's $2,000 now like that. Was, <laughs> now, now, I don't know why that got on the list. Oh. And I was like, okay, but we're not changing it. You told me they were $500. <laughs> we'll have to figure out where that 1500 is going to come from because it's not going to, uh, I can't take it out now. The, the the sequence will not work with that with another piece of music um and it's going to cost you more to re-edit than it would mm. to pay the fifteen hundred dollars and uh and johnny cash was a tough one uh for a lot of different reasons it's it's a unique piece in the movie it's the only piece of music that doesn't have a source it's the, it's very strange moment in it mm -hmm. and I'll, i know abby we we've talked about this previously um, she had an insight that I'm I'm excited to hear oh. how, how that goes. But I'll say with Johnny Cash, incredible, transcendent, like mythic American artist. I love him. I've got all the American records on vinyl and several of his others. But or and I'd say like 90 percent of the time when I hear a Johnny Cash song in film or television, like it kind of takes me out. I get my brain goes from being like in the universe of whatever I'm in. And then, Oh, that's Johnny cash. And like, like in lucky, I, you recognize it's Johnny cash, but it's, it's perfectly suited without being mm -hmm. too on the nose. It's, it, it was perfect. Well, throughout the process of trying to figure out a way to make that work, my job was to do the due diligence around it. I was told them we wouldn't be able to afford that. So I started looking at other solutions. I asked Elvis Keen, who was our, who was our composer who created a lot of the, all of the music in the, in the diner, all of the, the music from the jukebox, that's all Elvis. And 
he um, is incredible because he can give you any kind of anything that you need, any style of piece that you need. And he's able to find a way to voice that. It's, mm. He's incredible. I asked him to write a piece for that, and I asked uh, the sound department to rough in a, um, a one with just the ambient noise of the house through the sequence. Ooh, that would have been haunting. I mean, the dark, Johnny Cash song is dark. haunting, but yeah. no music would have been brutal. Yeah, and uh, we uh, all watched all of them. But uh, Logan was um, unpleasant. Uh in in a true in a in the in a right way, it was unpleasant. But that it had to be that. Mm-hmm. And so when we uh, and we had all kind, we went around and around and around the bend about it. It's a music video. It doesn't. It's like nothing else in the movie. Uh, it, it, it is the only unsourced piece of music in it. So you are laying it on top. It is a needle drop. There's there's no other needle drops in the movie. It's very strange. It doesn't really fit. Does it is it. unique, yeah. So there are no real wise. needle drops. Filmography-wise, it breaks all the rules of the movie. <laughs> it breaks them all. Had a screening at Vidiot's. The only test screening we had was at Vidiot's. We get done with the screening, and a very smart film crowd gave us a bunch of ideas and notes and thoughts. And they were quite generous and thoughtful. An hour and 15 minutes into that conversation, just as we were wrapping up, anything else anybody want to say? There's a long silence and one person said, you know, it's kind of weird that Johnny Cash song. It's kind of like not like anything else in the movie. You know, he basically, you know, kind of put his finger on the entire conversation. So we walk out of the videos and we're standing on the corner in Santa Monica. And I said to the producers, I said to Greg and Adam, we had an hour and a half of discussion before that even came up. And it was an afterthought. We had to prompt it out of the audience. And there was one guy. Mm-hmm. I said, um, we've all watched all three sequences. This is the only one that works. So this is how much the cabinet's going to cost. <laughs> we got we to gotta find the money. Mm-hmm. Make some calls. And they did. And they went and they called the investors. And the investors made an, uh, an additional investment in the finish of the film, which went primarily to a step deal for that picture, for that, for that song. Logan was absolutely right. From soup to nuts, he was absolutely right about it. Yeah. And uh, there was never a moment where I thought it worked without it. Um, uh, but it was, a, it was not easy because uh, at this budget level, you're watching every, every dime, you know. Yeah, I I think it's I I'm I'm really glad it's in the movie. I I was uh, yeah I was telling Phil beforehand. I feel like with that scene and the loneliness that it conveys and the beauty that it conveys, and then to follow that with um, that that scene of connection between Lucky and then the waitress who just kind of shows up out of nowhere to say hello, it almost makes that that scene with the Johnny Cash song feel like a prayer to me, like a call out to just like connect with somebody, anybody to like hear the thoughts that are in my head and like help me process my feelings. And then all of a sudden the next day there, there's somebody like, who just shows up and say hello. Yeah, here she is. Uh, I mean, I do believe that there's a, there's a sense that he's never more alone than in that. You know, when he says there's a difference between being alone and lonely. Yeah. He's lonely in that moment. Yeah. 
But what, what Lucky didn't realize was the entire town is holding him up, that he does not yeah. live in isolation, that he is not a lonely cowboy on the edge of the desert, that he is a, a member of a community that knows him, that knows him. Mm-hmm. Truly. And knows where he lives. Like she says, it's a small town. Everybody, everybody knows where knows. everybody lives. It's a community. <laughs> like, you, you, I mean, there's 12 of us here. Yeah. Like, everybody knows where you live. Yeah. And uh, and I love the, you know, don't you know where I live? That yellow house by the yeah. yellow house. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all know where everybody lives. Yeah. And like, even when the bodega owner says, you know, that house behind the school that, yeah, that's yeah. where, that's, yeah. The illusion of his self-reliance, of his rugged individualism, the illusion yeah. is what disappears. Um, it, he, it's an illusion. It's an illusion for all of us. Well, and it's so powerful when they're on the couch smoking together. That's when he has the moment, right, where he says, like, can I tell you something? Like, I'm scared. And that's that's a I mean, talk about every scene being economical, building, moving, pointing like that's for this movie on this scale, that's like an explosion, mm-hmm. like something that is completely different than everything else we've seen so far. Well, it's, it's, um, he's, he's come to an acceptance of the fear that he's been holding back since he fell. But that's, again, this is, I think this is how we live our lives. Right. You know I mean? Most people, like one of the reasons why I love Boyhood, the Linklater movie, mm. is that is that he spent spent ten years making a movie, insane, and assiduously in the in every aspect of the film, he is determined to give you no dramatic moments at all. There's not a birthday, <laughs> there's not a wedding, there's not a graduation, there's not a funeral. And it's 10 years of a kid's life. That was absolutely his point. That that life is not lived in those moments. Life is lived when you're brushing your teeth and farting. That's when life is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when, that's when you're the most terrified. And there were moments in the movie in Boyhood where Let's throw these circular saws, you know, these circular saw blades into the wall. You stand over sure, there yeah. and you're like, oh, good God, you know, and just like every other kid, how did we survive? Like, how did. So true. That is like with young kids, I'm like, oh, like I want them to have a great time yes. and like experience and, and explore and grow into their own people. But like, I, I want them to survive to like. Yeah. And, and you like you like this, the sockets are going to kill you. So let's yeah. try to I mean, get into the mindset. That's why it's a really weird mindset we're in where everything is terrifying and COVID's mm-hmm. made it worse. Mm-hmm. Everything is terrifying because everything can kill you, which we haven't experienced, to be honest. I mean, uh, the, I'm getting off. I'm on a tangent, but the, the COVID of it all. Sure. Um, the movie does play different, I think, than when I first saw it now. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since COVID because the isolation is different, I'm sure. But, mm-hmm. but the, yeah, the COVID of it all for me is that my generation of people, the major viruses were AIDS, which you could were only bloodborne, as and Ebola, right? Bloodborne. Uh, 
you know, E. coli is foodborne, but it's not really, it's not, that's not really a virus. An airborne virus makes everything deadly. Everything. When we didn't know what was going on. Yeah. The actual uncertainty of life is made much more present. Palpable. And yeah. that's what happens to him. Mm -hmm. He's always been vulnerable. It's just now he rec he recognizes his vulnerability. He's forced to, like against yeah. his will. With the Johnny Cash song, like I'm pretty sure the one of the last shots, if not the last shot, is him more or less in his bed in the fetal position. Yeah. And like Abby said, with the lyrics kind of like almost against his will, crying out to mm -hmm. the void for relief. And then it provides. It's like that whole and that's the other thing watching partly fiction and uh, a number of harry dean interviews kind of thinking about lucky he would both say oh like i'm nothing there's nothing and then yeah he would quote jesus he would quote buddha he would quote like all these deep thinkers in order to help give him meaning for this thing that he said there is no meaning and and that's that was beautifully distilled in Lucky. Well, the what's the what is the meaning of the what is the what is the primary meaning? What is the primary value of of his discovery? What's the primary? I mean, I guess for him, maybe like peace. I mean, he says that uh, it, it's in this it's in this Tom Skerritt scene, and he digests. Yeah, I was, is, that's where I was mm -hmm. wanted to go next. Is to, to your only choice is to smile? Yeah. Which, so, but, yeah, I have a question for so you. Moving. I know you, that whole like that's another. I would think either the song at the birthday party or the Skerritt scene. If I was just going to show somebody one scene from the movie to kind of hook them, you've done a plethora of stuff. But I one of the things that I do kind of associate you with is a lot of just genre stuff because you've done so many things like what was what was alien for you and then what was it like to have harry dean and tom scarrett sitting at a diner x amount of years later 40 50 years later well tom came in uh one of our friends and cast members who armstrong went and picked him up at the airport and he came straight from the airport from you know the northwest where he lives uh to the set and uh, Harry was sitting outside and and Tom and he say hello and hug. And Harry says, you remember that time we changed science fiction forever? <laughs> oh, man. Subtle. <laughs> uh, and he goes, yeah, I remember. Tom's an actor who brings a, 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 a really good military presence with him. He's. Mm -hmm. He's played a lot of military people. He has a he has a build that we describe as military. You know, he's got a he's got you know. And um, one of when he throws that hat down on the counter, you believe it. Yeah, you believe it. And um, and he works with veterans. You know, he works with a lot of PTSD veterans. That's what drew him to the piece to begin with. That's one of the reasons why I said yes. And um, he uh, also um, his best work to me is in A River Runs Through It. Um, where he's he's dealing again with faith, you know, and even in Mash, yeah, uh, he, he he's he presides over the, the Last Supper for for Painless. He gives he gives uh, Painless the placebo pills uh, to put before he lays him in the casket. 
So there's something about Scarrett as a performer that brings a divinity to his work. And in essence, uh, in the movie, he's a priest. Yeah, he's like the, the military chaplain for Lucky. That's right. Telling him the story to kind of give him the permission to find. And it's like, if this girl in what the Philippines can mm-hmm. have joy, an old guy out here surrounded by love. Can yeah, find surrounded joy. By, like the joy, the joy he has in the film when he smiles at the end of the bar scene is the is the moment of, of full and complete acceptance of the mortality that he's facing. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, uh, it was only later that I came, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of the work on it, I really realized how much my own cancer diagnosis, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I'm, you know, cancer-free, gratefully. It's a uh, I, they caught it very early and everything's fine. But, but that, that cancer diagnosis is quite a sobering thing and a, actually something that really has been extremely valuable as a person. Kind of life is more precious. It's, it's a clarifying moment to be told you're, there's a clock ticking. Yeah. Uh, I equate life to, um, the end of a soccer game where they don't know how much penalty time is left, (laughs) but the game's going to end at some point. We're not quite sure when. Yeah. And that's probably the best sports analogy too, because those games actually end. (laughs) There's a clear definitive ending. And and the other part of it is without a clock, soccer is fucking meaningless. (laughs) It's true. I could literally, I mean, when I was a kid, yeah, we would play all day. Yeah. I mean, there's no, it needs, a, it needs time to hmm. be, to be meaningful. Huh. That is a really good metaphor for this, uh, this existence. Yes. We need, you know, as a human being, I require time for me to have meaning mm-hmm. for what I choose to have meaning. That's one of the interesting things about all the metaphors around vampires in every sure. circumstance is that life becomes valueless when yeah. you have if you're immortal. Yeah. Immortal in this world. Yes. Um, I'm sure that like when we get into the edit for this, I'm going to wish I asked you 20 more questions. And I'm sure we could go <laughs> several more hours. But one thing that I absolutely wanted to hit um, before, as we're kind of getting here at the time, um, David Lynch. Yeah. So, one of the most auteury of auteur directors and you being one of the character actor, most character actors kind of reversing roles for this project. What was, what was that like? How do you direct David Lynch in a scene? <laughs> I mean, gratefully he made himself available for that. I mean, not yeah. only did he make himself physically available, but he, he made it really clear from the very beginning that he was going to take notes and that he was going to behave as an actor. I bet directors would make great actors, right? Because they know what they want. I mean, I think that maybe it depends on on the, I I mean, we all know there are certain directors who are terrible actors. Mm -hmm. We don't have to name them, right? (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong. We don't have to name the ones that are terrible at it. We all know who he is. (laughs) I'm kidding. There are great directors who are terrible actors. Um, David Lynch's understanding of what, uh, the relationship is is what was so what he did. Hmm. 
you know, he came in, he came in prepared. He came in with ideas. He wanted particular things and they didn't jibe with my take on the character. I was like, yeah, I see where you're headed with this. And then he, he headed there. His relation, his warmth towards Harry was oh. so evident. Yeah. Yeah. You know, his, his, his love for, uh, you know, Howard's love for, for, uh, for Lucky um, and his are exactly the same. And so when he's not sitting at that bar stool, you feel it. You feel the emptiness. Yes, you do. Bar stool. Yeah. We, we shot it that way to make sure that the, we framed it. We framed it as a two shot with one person in it, but, but, um, but it was still, you, you knew it from the way in which they related to each other. Yeah. And beyond their relationship, I don't know how much uh, Logan interacted with David, but like the tortoise stuff, like that seemed also very Lynchian. Like it, because I mean, David Lynch has acted in a number of things, but he seen it, it seemed like very good material for him. I mean, he he we couldn't have made the movie without him. He he was he was he was part of the reason why we got the financing. So sure, you know, he, he him being in it was a big part of it, and we had to figure out a way to get him mm-hmm. while he was finishing up editing the entire season, you mm. know, of Twin Peaks. So, you know, Incredible he gave stuff. us he gave us the you know three days he had, and um and it was all for Harry. And uh, when in partly fiction, when they're sitting and he's asking those questions. Uh, that are being that are that he's asking him from three by five cards that were requested by the documentarian, while they have a really nice hot cup of coffee, they're like a little pot-bellied stove on that sofa. It's beautiful, warm. and yeah. you feel that in every in every frame of the two of them playing together. But but he brought, I mean, when when he's having that lunatic talk about his relationship with his tortoise with president Roosevelt (laughs) in, in the wrong hands that doesn't play well. Yeah. That could land very strange. He, he he gave it the truth of, of his, you know, experience. And I think that has to do with what a searching um, artist he is. He never stops creating he's creating right now, whatever, you know, he created today, you know, he, he never stops. And, you know, whether it's film or television or whether he's going to do those things anymore, or whether it's a piece of art or, you know, man, I hope so. His, uh, Selfishly. Shaking, I know he's got all of his paints, but I, I hope he makes more film well, or television. Shaking, yeah, me too. But the shaking of his iPhone on Fridays is, is was a great, meme and loved it great time and also when he would give you the weather report from Alabama. yeah Yeah. you know i mean he just knows how to pull you away to a kind of a a different relationship with the world like he shot um a racer head in the stables at afi Mm -hmm. and uh and he lived in the stables for the first year he was there so what does he do he makes a racer head i mean he takes the experience and it comes out as something completely different. And I loved his ability. I went to a talk back at camera image. He was there with uh, twin peaks and I was there with lucky different. And, uh, and there was a talk back and he spent an hour 
not answering anybody's question. I love he and Harry were both pretty good at being like, nah, I don't want to know. Yeah, he was always <laughs> David would always walk around. He would figure out, Harry would just not answer. Well, <laughs> he would just walk, David, what David does is he walks around the question. It's like, what do you think it means? Or like he'll say something completely like poetically flabbergasting, where it's like, yes. Wow. What? Yes, exactly. Like, write that down. That's a poem, but it already, did not answer my question. He's already, you know, like, this is what happens. This is a very difficult thing at post-show post, post show discussions. If you get a lot of them, like he has had, you know, <sighs> when you're talking about your film, you, well, what did your film mean? Did you watch it? That's what, <laughs> that's what. I, I just did that. You you go home and talk about what it, what it means. Because I... I, and also what I love about theatrical um, storytelling is we imagine that we're actually communicating. We imagine that like we, we have these, you know, this rattling off of uh, phonemes that create a, 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 the illusion that I'm actually getting across to you somehow. And in the truth of the matter is the distance is far, far wider than we can actually reach. And uh, what I love about film as a medium or the theater is that we all agree to take the same dream for 90 minutes or for two hours. We all agree to live the same dream, but it doesn't mean we have the same experience of the dream. Yeah. yeah the, what, what you see is not what That's I right, see. Yeah. Whatever. What, you, what you see is not what I get. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. The, you get what you see, but yeah, what you see is not what I get. Or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I, I do, I do agree with that as a, as a primary concept. I, I agree with that just generally. Absolutely. I, I think yeah. it's so beautifully tragic that we are reaching. You know, it's that Ugh. I forget the Greek philosopher who, you know, said if I go halfway every day to the place I'm going, I'll never get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. That's kind of how communication works, I think. If we can reach halfway, I won't keep you much longer, but I do want to say this. You know, one of the things I liked about the editing process was asking the question, how long do I want the audience to be thinking about this? And that's a good way to idiocy of it is I actually imagined I knew what you were thinking. (laughs) No, and that's that's so important. Like we're. Abby and I are both very big proponents of the theatrical experience and even like the physical media. Like it's, it's, I mean, there's definitely a lot of film and television that is products and just content and kind of nonsense. And we won't name any of those names either, but at at its best, it is, it's of all of the value. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's all the things that we're doing grasping at meaning, trying to understand ourselves, trying to understand one another and live amongst others. Like that's, that's what that art touches. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to say, I've been thinking about this and like kind of throughout the conversation we've been having. So I've, I've shown lucky to about like a handful of people to uh, like my mom and a group of friends in a room to um, like, I recommended it to friends during COVID. I showed it to some folks at my church when I was preparing for the book to kind of tell them what I was working on. And everybody, everybody I've shown it to has had like a really, really strong reaction to it. 
And I think I think it's because of the the human scope of the story. And I think it's also because there are so many meanings that you can take from it. There are all of these really like universal themes and beautiful open ended questions that I think people choose to answer for themselves in different ways. And um like I'll never forget the first time I watched it was with my mom and I had like I told her a couple months earlier when when Harry died I was like man I'm really sad because Harry Dean Stanton died and he was one of my favorite actors and she said yeah that's sad and then just kind of moved on at the end of that movie she was in tears like ugly crying and I just said well what's are you are you okay what's going on and she just looked at me and she said he died and I was like yeah he did and I think it was for her wrapped up and I think for me a little bit as well wrapped up in the fact that like my grandmother had passed away earlier about like a year ago and my grandfather a few years before that and so I think she was thinking about that a lot while we were watching the movie but I think everybody that I've talked to brings a really unique perspective a very personal perspective to to watching Lucky and I think that's one of the great gifts of the film so I just wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you, and uh, um, it was it was a great pleasure to work on it and to learn from. And um, I love I loved how it turned out. And um, you're never sure whether or not what you're working on is going to work or not. And it was a, it was exciting to to have people respond uh, to a piece of work. So much of what we do vanishes so quickly now it's like we make battleships and then sink them immediately so there's so much one works on that never has any response um i like i'm glad that lucky has a response because the screenplay need the screenplay deserved it harry deserved it and the work of everybody who came to play with harry from me to everybody um, the the guiding principle of the piece from the very beginning was let's show off Harry. Yeah. And it does that. And there's not going to be, it's, it's, I don't think there's a, a, a better elegic movie than that one there right down to the, uh, to the smile into the lens uh, where he, finally gets to thank us for watching him for 50 years. Yeah. It just incredible. Oh, it breaks my heart every time. I mean in a in a beautiful and wonderful in the way. Best yeah, way. it's yeah. it yeah, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was uh, beautiful Drago came up with that from of all places uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and when we got the uh, we got that draft when they put that in in era Iris Stephen Bear, one of the executive producers, called me. Have you finished it? I said, no, not yet. He goes, call me when you finish. <laughs> and I finish. And and I see that in print. And I lost it. Yeah. I lost it. And uh, I called him. And I go, yeah, I just, I just finished it. <laughs> well, That's so good. Anyway. One of the things we like to do, and especially with somebody who – is as busy as you. You do a lot of work. Um, in all the interviews I heard, it looks like you're both a, not just like a consumer, but like a true enjoyer. Like you love this medium. You love engaging with it. You love creating in it. What What has John Carroll Lynch been watching and enjoying? And what would he, what, what would you like to recommend? What maybe 
Um, New, I, old, what have you been loving lately? I loved I loved Nyad. I thought that was terrific. I think Dumb Money is really good. Hmm. Um, okay. Dumb Money is a surprise. It was a surprise to me. I thought that was a... I went to see it, you know, and I, and I just thought it was just wonderful. Uh, I thought it was a really smart movie. A lot, an Adam McKay movie, but, but with a little more... Well, I mean, a little more heart, but it's also terrifying. Yeah. Origin is... Origin is extraordinary. Um, it's an extraordinary piece. Um, it's coming out in January 19th, but it, you know, it's neon. So tell everybody to see it mm-hmm. the first weekend because it'll only be in selected theaters and it needs to be seen on a screen because there's a, there's a need to see those images when you can't get away from them. Um, there are things that happen in the movie that are, that are so, she's just so powerful that mm-hmm. she's a powerful filmmaker and it's, it's a great film and the performances are, are wonderful. Um, she sold me really hard that actor, the director thing with her and Michael Mann was an incredible conversation. I was like, if that that's playing in Kansas city, I got to check that out. Yeah. But it was really funny too. Like I only saw one cut of that and there's no cut on Michael Mann. I mean, you know, guys genius but it was funny like he talked for 15 minutes and like then then she goes uh michael mann said the camera was in the right place it's like you know, that's all, that's all i saw it's like talk about her movie right not ferrari we're talking like when we're talking about her movie, you, just, you talk more <laughs> but i find her like even in the talk back she absorbs you know, she's talking about the movie that she wrote, that she directed, that she found the money for. And all she is doing is reflecting back on the artist that she works with. Hmm. She's she's amazing. Anything I, I on a small a, screen that you've been loving? Um, the small screen. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I've loved the same thing everybody else did. I thought the bear was terrific. I, I had a moment where we were. I was on the strike line and where we Evan... Moss Bacharach was there and I, uh, and he was, he was picketing with Molly Ringwald, who was also in the first season of the bear. And, uh, I, I said to him, you know, I want to congratulate you on being on the best ensemble on television. And it includes all 160,000 other SAG-AFTRA members who want to be on your show. (laughs) There's nobody they couldn't get to do that show. It's, it's so fantastic. Um, what else have I liked? I'll say I don't think it's a comedy, but it's fantastic. No, I'm but but I mean I mean uh, I know. <laughs> that, that, that particular thing. I I mean I really do think comedy should be funny. That that would be good, but I I think it is its own thing. It does have a lot of. It's humor. incredible. And no, very funny people. The writing is yeah. And Oliver Platt is, I mean everybody in it. Everybody in it shines. It's a terrific piece of work. Um. Um. But I mean, that's that's kind of like what recently have I looked at that I was like that I want to watch more of. I haven't been watching a lot of stuff. I got to be honest about television. Hmm. We moved into a new place and we just set up our television. So oh, there you go. It's been a while. Um, and then finally, what of you've got hundreds of things. I know the new the 4K of Fargo just came out. They're always re-releasing stuff that you've been in. What what would you like to highlight specifically for people to uh, check out of your work, or what do you have coming down the pipeline? I had the good fortune of uh, of working with Mario Van Peebles on a on a movie called Outlaw Posse. It's mm-hmm. going to be premiering 
uh, in uh, February. Also, I did a, a Pamela Adlon's first uh, feature um, called Babes. It's that looks very fun. I just read up on hilarious. that today. It's hilarious. Uh, and uh, the two women are Michelle. They're both just terrific. Yeah, I look for it. And I got to work briefly with Oliver Platt, which was yep. which was even for five seconds. I like that a lot. I like I would love to play with him for the rest of my life. I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, well, no, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Or yeah, anything else that you feel nothing like is right a nothing right now. Thing? I'm about to do something called She Ride Shotgun um, uh, in in February. It's, it'll be really my first job back from the from the strike. Hmm. Mr. Lynch, thank you for your time. Thank you for this movie. This is something that I want to promote to as many people as I can and greatly, greatly appreciate your time. So that was our conversation with John Carroll Lynch. Abby, what did you think? That was incredible. It was, yeah. That was everything that I could have hoped from that conversation and more. He had so many great stories to share and so many great insights and clearly loves talking about the talking about that movie. And I'm glad we uh, gave him the opportunity to uh, to talk about it. Yeah, guys, be sure to check it out. It's streaming in a few places, whatever streaming platforms it is currently on at the time of the episode release. I'll make sure to have in the show notes. But yeah, genuine masterpiece of a film. Actually, I was encouraged. I don't know um, what how many would you imagine? Have you checked Letterboxd Unlucky recently, Abby? I have not. What would you guess the ballpark of logs on Letterbox that Lucky has? Oh gosh, um, I'm I'm Been really for seven years. guessing. <laughs> Been on there for seven years. I am gonna say, hopefully, three fifty to four hundred. Is it less than that? It's probably less than that. Oh no, is it less than that? Four hundred thousand views. Oh, thousand? No, I I don't know. Yeah, oh, how many? Oh, four hundred. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it is like forty-four thousand. Forty-four thousand. That's great. See, yeah, I'm a notoriously yeah, bad I, I, Letterbox logger, so that's why. <laughs> no, I I love Letterbox so much. Letterbox sponsor the show, or just keep sending your hosts to be on our show. We'll take that too. That's probably better for us. Yes, please. Uh, but also sponsor the show if you like to. <laughs> um, but yeah, forty-four k. Because I was like, I've been filling in a lot of gaps in my filmographies of various people in various genres and like the more obscure ones, like a lot of them only have like one or 2000 or some of these arrow box sets of like some deep genre stuff. Some of them don't even have 500 views. Wow. And so I was like, Oh, lucky. Like it's an incredible movie. John Carroll Lynch, Harry Dean Stanton, David Lynch, but like also no relation, which is funny. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but that's because we knew and we didn't want to make it. I thought about asking like how often he gets that question, but I didn't even want to sound stupid. I was so pleasantly surprised that I was like, if this has 10,000, I'll be happy. And I had like, yeah, 44. That's great. But yeah. Cause more. Yes. Cause most people I talk to about this movie haven't heard of it or if they have, it's because um, me or a friend has told them. So yeah, word of mouth Same. works and it needs to be, it needs to be stronger for this one, I think. And Abby, uh, as far as word of mouth and like large platforms go talking about lucky you're, uh, you're working on a project, right? 
I am. I am working on a book uh, to be published with IVP uh, University Press um, later this year in the fall. And it is a collection of essays on uh, faith and film that is structured around the church liturgical year. So if you're looking for mainstream movies to watch around uh, Easter or Lent, uh, Lucky is on the chapter in the chapter on Lent. Um or even Which brought him if, great joy. That yeah, was so. Brought, I don't know if that was if we got that. I think we got that recorded. And Dave, if we don't want to put that off top in kind of a more natural opening, definitely put that in the the B roll after the show. But that was such a great reaction. Yeah, that gave me a lot of joy. Um, but yeah, that's that's all of that is going to be kind of in the book. It's been a really fun experience to get to reengage with a lot of my favorite movies and show them to people in a new light. Well, can't wait for that. We love IVP. We love movies. We love the church calendar. So that's like the perfect, the perfect thing to talk about here on the show. So guys, yeah, be sure to look out for Abby's book. And if you enjoyed this conversation, man, just even like a fraction as much as we did, be sure to tell somebody. Um, We always love making something that we think has value in this. I mean, we've got some stunners of substantive cinema episodes, if I do say so myself. But this one, how special. That's we, We've never had a filmmaker on to talk about their own film. And just this, this was so great. So if you liked it, text it to a friend, share it on social media, whatever you do. Um, we're not even on all the things. We're working on trying to be more technologically savvy. Tell other people about it. If you want to join us in support, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash the substance pod. Or if monthly support is not really your thing and you want to just give us a little tip, you can do that on cash app at dollar sign the substance pod. Send us your thoughts and feedback or suggestions for future topics. Uh, either DM us on Instagram or send them to the substance pod at gmail.com. And I've been your host, Philip, with our guest, Abby. Thank you for joining us here for the outro. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on The Substance. Hey, I've been to two Super Bowl parades. It's been it's been nice. It's been oh, a, you a went nice to the time to be here. In a city the size of Kansas City, you couldn't miss a Super Bowl parade. That's true. Yeah. Downtown gets ridiculous. I mean, you literally couldn't. I mean, you couldn't do anything. I mean, it's I-70 goes straight through the place, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't. Oh, yeah. Abby, no. did you go to either of the parades? No. <laughs> it was they, too, they were too, too cold. I watched, they were I watched gnarly. them on TV, but I didn't go. That was maybe smart. By them? Yeah. No, was... I mean, uh, they, have, they have every opportunity to go again this year and to win. I think it's going to be an interesting uh, game this coming weekend, although uh, the whole NFL is evil, but that's a different question. I don't disagree uh, theoretically, and that's funny that you say that. My previous... Uh, my best friend and uh, previous co-host who did like the first 125 episodes with me, uh-huh. he was banging that drum all the time. He's like, we should do a full episode on that. And I was like, well, maybe we can, maybe let's, we can do that. Let's try to avoid indicting the most popular thing in the United States. The only thing that everybody agrees on. Let's, let's do that. One thing at a time. <laughs> what exactly have we begun? I don't know. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> no, we're just trying to get the get the fanning out of the way, and then we can talk about the work. Right. Before this was even an option, you and I bonded on this movie a couple of times. Yeah, we and did. We did. Yeah. 
It's actually uh, in, my... a, in, a, in a book that I am currently working on. Um, it's a, a book of essays on movies to watch through the church liturgical year. And Lucky is my, uh, wow. yeah, Lucky Lucky is the, the last movie in my uh, chapter on Lent. So. <laughs> yeah. Harry would laugh hysterically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I would. know. I'm sure he would. <laughs> he made Lent. Fabulous. <laughs> if you want to join us in support, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash the substance pod or or if monthly support is not your thing. Okay. Pause for my wife's chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Get it out. It's fine.